everyone has a story to tell. So you become good at telling your story and people will will want to hear it and in different forms. So you remain open. You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow your side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews-Okome. So let's get started. Today in the guest chair, we have Monique Greenwood. Monique is owner and CEO, that's Chief Enjoyment Officer, of Aquaba Bed and Breakfast Inns, a collection of upscale B&Bs in Brooklyn, New York, Washington, D.C., Cape May, New Jersey, Philadelphia, PA, and a boutique resort in Pennsylvania's Pocono Mountains. Monique also has a storied career in journalism and is former editor-in-chief of Essence Magazine. Even while enjoying great success in publishing, Monique was always determined to develop her own business empire. She opened her first bed and breakfast over 20 years ago with the purchase of a dilapidated mansion in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, and together with her husband, restored that jewel, then bought another nearby property to open a 72-seat restaurant called Aquaba Cafe. She is passionate about economically empowering our communities and encouraging others to dream and live on purpose. In today's episode, we talk about her journey from experiencing early professional success in magazine publishing to being recruited by Essence Magazine to serve as both lifestyle and style director, to ultimately being promoted to editor-in-chief of Essence, succeeding iconic editor Susan Taylor and serving a monthly readership of nearly $2 million. Monique also shares how she has overcome difficult moments like opening a bed and breakfast property in New Orleans right before Hurricane Katrina hit and how she's tackling the COVID crisis of 2020 plus so much more. Can't wait for you to hear it. First things first, give us a peek into your life and your background, how you came to have this storied career. When were you first exposed to entrepreneurship? Well, I guess my real first exposure to entrepreneurship came through my family. My grandfather started Washington, D.C.'s oldest Black-owned business. It started in the early 1800s. He had a moving and storage business that he used to actually haul furniture and trash using a um, a horse and kind of like cart that was attached to his horse. Uh, it's a long story, but suffice to say that He started that business out of um, some racist practices when he had a corner grocery store and the white-owned grocer down the street complained that he didn't want his groceries delivered in the same truck with a black man's. And that's when my grandfather, who could have resorted to complaining, whining, being violent, all kinds of things, instead got innovative and saved up enough money to buy his own horse and car to pick up his own groceries. And when he wasn't doing that, he started hauling furniture. And that turned into Greenwood's Transfer, moving a storage company. And Greenwood is my last name. And my grandfather ran that business. And then my aunt and um, took it over once he passed. And and grew it to one of the top 100 Black-owned businesses in the country, according to Black Enterprise, in the 70s. So I grew up uh, knowing about this family-owned business. My father worked for his family business, although he was not an owner. He was a moving man, and that's because he sold his part of the family business to my aunt, who, uh, who ran everything. And so she was kind of my inspiration. And I understood the difference of working for a company and owning a company because I saw how I was raised and how we lived versus how she was able to raise her children, uh, given the power of entrepreneurship. Wow. That is so powerful to have had that exposure at such a young age. Now, I understand you went on to still pursue, you know, a traditional education. You went to college at Howard. Mm -hmm. At the time, were you thinking of pursuing business or entrepreneurship? Well, to be honest with you, even though I knew that my um, family owned this business, 
I really never understood the intricacies of it, of it until after I had graduated from Howard and really read about my grandfather's story in an old yellowing newspaper, Washington Post, that was in the drawer where my mom used to keep the report cards and, the, and my college diploma was in there. And I went looking for that. And that's when I really understood the story. Up until that point, I just knew that my daddy was a moving man and that there were these big trucks that drove throughout the city that had my name on it. But I didn't know all the behind the scenes of that business. Um, I am a first generation college grad, so it was absolutely the desires of my parents that I go to school, set an example for my younger siblings who would then go to college after me. Um, and so I went to school and majored in journalism and minored in fashion. And I don't think I had it in my head at that point that I would ultimately own my own business, although I did aspire to own my own magazine. So, you know, it kind of started with the genesis of that moving business and seeing um, what it takes to run a business and knowing the work ethic that my father had and um, providing for his family. Why do you think you were drawn to journalism? Uh, I love to talk. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I was originally uh, going to major in broadcast journalism. I used to, as a kid, read the newspaper to my parents as if I were delivering the six o'clock news on their television station. So it's something I was, I'm inquisitive um, by by nature. And um, uh, so I always wanted to, to be in journalism. I decided at Howard that I would combine my passion for fashion with journalism and decided to minor in fashion, even though the school didn't offer that as a minor. I had to kind of self-craft my own minor by taking classes in fine arts and history of costume or classes in merchandising in the School of Business. And I took sewing in the School of Human Ecology and just kind of made my own fashion minor because I decided that you'll you'll do a better job writing about something you care about. And so at the time, fashion um, meant everything to me. And so I was able to combine the two. And when you graduated, did you go immediately to work for Essence or did you start out at another publication? No, I immediately went to work for Fairchild Publications, which publishes Women's Wear Daily and all of the fashion trade publications. And that was the best kind of um, training I could possibly have, because while I was writing and writing about fashion, I was writing about the business of fashion. So I really, you know, cut my chops in that industry at Women's Wear Daily, which also has uh, W and a number of other fashion publications. And while there, I I started a new publication for the company, so I was an entrepreneur. They they did not have a magazine that covered children's fashions, and that was all the rage at the time. There was like a mini baby boom. This is when Donna Karen started DKNY Kids, and Ralph Lauren started his kids line, and everybody was going after the children's market, but we didn't have a publication there that's focused on children's fashions. And so that was probably my first real um, entrepreneurial pursuit, even though it was within a company. I went and pitched the idea of a monthly magazine that would cover children's fashions, but also not specific to just clothing, but also trends in footwear and um, and juvenile products, whether it was strollers or cribs. And a lot of that had to do with what was happening in toys. So we also covered the toys market because of licensing agreements. If it, if it was all about, you know, Cabbage Patch, then it was going to be Cabbage Patch doll. Then that turns into Cabbage Patch sneakers, Cabbage Patch bedding for the nursery, Cabbage Patch, you know, backpacks. And so that's what that magazine became. And it was called Children's Business. And so I started that publication and then I kind of hired uh folks that worked at other publications within the company who I admired and thought would be part of a great team. And and we launched something pretty wonderful. I love that you talk about entrepreneurship because I think it's so important to use the resources you have. If you're in a company, you know, try to be the leader of something. So you just have that motivation to build something. Even if you don't know what your ultimate entrepreneurial pursuit will be, that action, that forward momentum really does lead to things. And in addition to that, I want to know how, after you've you've had such autonomy and, and created a whole magazine, what led you to pivot over to Essence? 
Yeah, that was um, a difficult decision, and then it wasn't a difficult decision. You're right. I mean, I was running the magazine. I was a publisher and editor, and um, and I loved it. And then I had the opportunity to host a book party for Susan Taylor uh, at my bed and breakfast in Brooklyn, which I already was running on the side because I believe in that too, the side hustle. Oh, yes. <laughs> and so um, when Susan came for her book signing, and I had a chance to give her a tour of the of the mansion. Uh, she said, oh, my sister, by the time we got to the top of the stairs on the second floor, we need you at Essence. <laughs> That's how those talks started. Um, she was interested in having me come to be the style director for the magazine. Um, and of course, I was already working as a fashion journalist, but I was running the magazine. And this was definitely not co- even considered a parallel move. I mean, this definitely was kind of in terms of title and in terms of money was a step down for me. But I made that decision because Essence had always been the magazine that I desired to be editor-in-chief of. It was the publication that sat on the coffee table in my family home and proclaimed me beautiful as a Black woman. Um, And though I knew that I was uh, kind of taking a step down, I used that and I knew I went in there to get a step up and I and my goal was to be let's go there spend a short period of time in this in this position and work my way to editor in chief. Um, I did share that uh, desire with Susan so she knew what my objectives were and so I I left and I went to Essence magazine as style director. Wasn't an easy uh, transition for me in the sense that I understood that we as black women especially needed to not put our assets on our ass, if you will. And so I had to go in and really change the way we covered fashion. And I really focused on investment dressing. And if I were to suggest that you buy a $600 outfit, believe me, I was going to show you six different ways to wear it. Um, So that was kind of my perspective around fashion at the time. And so I went to Essence as style director and I produced the fashion pages, edited the beauty pages, and uh, I also edited the what was called contemporary living at the time, but that was all lifestyle. Then I became the, um, let's see, I became the, the lifestyle editor, which I loved because that was parenting, travel, food, and home. And then I became what was it, the next deputy editor, I think was the next title I had, deputy editor, and then finally became editor-in-chief when Susan became, what was the title she gave herself? She didn't want to run the day-to-day, and she tapped me to succeed her, which was a big deal because she's iconic and had been the editor-in-chief of Essence, the face of that publication for 30 years at the time that um, I became her successor. So it was uh, six years that I was at Essence and six glorious years and absolutely loved every minute of it, but that's when I made the ultimate decision to become an entrepreneur and leave the magazine and start and grow a Quava bed and breakfast. And, you know, I didn't realize that you'd started it even before joining Essence. So let's dig into that. Now, at what stage did you start to explore the idea of a side hustle? And what were the first steps that you took to get started? So this is our 25th anniversary with a Quabba Bed and Breakfast Inn. So I've been doing this work for 25 years, and it's hard to believe uh, a quarter of a century has already passed. Yes, I had the Bed and Breakfast in Brooklyn uh, before I went to Essence. I started the bed and breakfast because I was staying at B&B's as a guest and really enjoying that experience and recognizing that it tapped into all of my personal passions. I love decorating and entertaining and creating special moments. And I also believe that real estate is the best financial investment you can make. And when all of those things came together, it came together in the form of a bed and breakfast. So um, my husband and I purchased a dilapidated mansion in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, which is arguably uh, the largest African-American community in the country. And we bought that dilapidated mansion with the goal of creating a B&B. So we actually live on the top floor, we still do, of the Brooklyn location. And we had uh, four guest rooms. And at the time, my thinking was that there were no major hotels in Brooklyn. And Brooklyn, if it were a city unto itself, would be the fourth largest city in the country. And at the time, 25 years ago, no major hotels. Of course, now there's an A-loft and there's just every 
kind of hotel you can think of in Brooklyn, but not 25 years ago. And so my thought was that we could have this bed and breakfast in Brooklyn, and we would primarily house the family and friends of people who lived in the neighborhood. Because what we knew was, because I'm from Washington, D.C., when my family and friends would come to visit, they would either stay in Manhattan or out at the airport hotel and spend half of the time going back and forth on the A train to visit me here in Brooklyn. And so I felt that there was definitely a market and not not going to be too difficult to put heads on beds in four guest rooms. And so that's that's what uh, I started with. That was my target market, the family and friends of people who were visiting uh, folks that lived in, in Brooklyn in my neighborhood. What quickly happened is that, and I, I like to say we kind of created the staycation model because um, immediately, 25 years ago, we started actually hosting people who lived down the street and around the corner. <laughs> So they were coming to uh, celebrate anniversaries. They were coming to propose um, special birthdays. And so we um, very much did the whole staycation concept for folks because what we realized quickly is that in a place with so much high pressure and high tech that people just need high touch. And that's what we offered and still do offer, that they could sit buy a fireplace and sip tea and then go soak in a jacuzzi and then sit under a chestnut tree in our yard. And um, that that was the whole experience. And folks felt rejuvenated when they came. And they also felt affirmed because we really celebrated our culture within the walls of a Quaba mansion, whether it was because we had African textiles on our vintage sofas or, you know, we, we knew to bring out the hot sauce when we served eggs in the morning with breakfast. Um, you know, <laughs> it was just kind of a, a safe place and a sense of knowing and comfort and understanding that you were going to be valued and appreciated. And if you were on vacation, there was no ha- no need for an explanation about your hair, about, you know, what anything. We, we just knew it all. We, we knew exactly what kind of music to play, what kind of food to serve, what kind of warmth to offer. And um, and that's still what is the hallmark of our hospitality. And you mentioned, of course, Brooklyn 25 years ago is much different. You know, Bed-Stuy 25 years ago is much mm-hmm. different than Bed-Stuy today. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that? What did it require financially for you to buy a mansion, even one that's dilapidated? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I noticed you guys, you know, went in with the intention of living on the top floor. So that's a sacrifice right there. So what was that financial investment like? Well, I mean, I think that when we purchased a mansion with the goal of opening a bed and breakfast, people certainly looked at us as if we had three eyes. And (laughs) I I think all entrepreneurs do. That third eye is the eye of vision. It's the ability to see the possibility. So for us, we're grateful that we look through that eye. We also are grateful that we didn't believe the hype about Bed-Stuy, do or die Bed-Stuy. You know, it was a neighborhood that was famous for some things, infamous for others. Um, but we we knew the reality of our community, that it was a beautiful place and that it wasn't just beautiful brown stones, but it was also beautiful brown people. And so, you know, we fortunately were, were able to buy the dilapidated man at, at what would be now considered a steal. I mean, it was a, just a steal. And so I don't have a problem telling people that um, we paid $225,000 for the mansion uh, 25 years ago. It's about 5,000 square feet, if you can imagine, and then it's detached, so there's land on both sides, which is very, very rare in New York to have land. It was, in hindsight, the best real estate purchase I could have ever, ever, ever made. Um, And of course, we put a lot of work and blood, sweat, and tears into it and money as well over the years, but back then, it wasn't a whole lot of money. And so we also felt that if we lived on the top floor and took guest um, in our guest rooms on the second floor and our first floor was common space that we would be profitable from the day we opened our doors because we had to live here anyway. So it didn't really cost us any extra money um, to run our business other than a few cartons of eggs so that we can make breakfast. And so, you know, I considered us profitable day one when the first guest came, that became money that ran, that dropped to the bottom line because all my other costs were primarily fixed costs because we lived here. 
Mm, very, very smart. Did you eventually imagine moving out or were you okay with having that be a dual use property? Well, that's a good question. I probably was ready to move out at least 10 years ago, if not sooner, mostly because it would have allowed me to have more guest rooms and to be able to have a bigger business. But my husband, on the other hand, I can't ever get him with it. Whenever I try to raise the, the, the question of moving out, he just doesn't want to hear of it because he... <laughs> He looks at the mansion as our home. You know, we we raised our daughter here. She was three when we moved here and started to run the bed and breakfast. She's now 28. So he looks at this as, you know, our family home. And so he doesn't want to move. He will say things like, you know, why should we? We have an apartment building down the street, for example, that I think has lovely apartments. I, I live, I'd like to live smaller now in my life as I age. Um, so I'm like, a two-bedroom apartment is just fine. And he will say, why should we? we move into a two-bedroom apartment when we live in a mansion. And I will say, because we don't live in a mansion, we live on the top floor of a mansion. (laughs) So we just don't really see eye to eye on that. And that's fine. I am very fluid with where I live anyway. We have locations in other cities, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but I spend the bulk of my time living in my pickup truck up and down 95 between New York and Philly and DC. And so I, you know, this is his home base for me. Mm -hmm. It's where he lives. And so we still continue to call the, the mansion in Brooklyn, our primary residence. And speaking of these other properties, so at what stage did you open up the different locations? Well, we were having a really good time doing the Brooklyn location. And then while I was at Essence, I was writing my first book called Having What Matters, uh, The Black Woman's Guide to Creating the Life You Really Want. And in the course of writing that, while I was at Essence and I had the bed and breakfast in Brooklyn and I was writing the book and I was on this board and I was this and that and the other, and I was overwhelmed. And so I was having a hard time writing a book called Having What Matters when I felt like I myself didn't have what mattered in my life. I always had a very long list of things to do and I live by my list. I make it every night before I go to bed and I check it off throughout the day. It's how I'm able to function and 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 be and multitask and you know I don't know how people do it do life any other way than that, but that's what I do. But I never showed up on that list. You know, my hair wouldn't would not be done or my nails would chip or whatever and those things stayed undone. And so I really and writing the book, having what matters, that it was it was really time for me to change my life, and so I made the decision uh, to leave Essence and 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 start to kind of create space for myself in my life. And so um, before I was leaving, I said, well, what what do I what do I need to do? And I, I always wanted a a weekend place or a summer place, and and I started to think about what does retirement look like and. I had this vision of having a home that I love in a city that I love for each season of the year. So that was going to be the grand plan, that I would retire at age 50. I would have a home that I love in a city that I love for each season of the year. And so expanding the bed and breakfast uh, concept was the way that I wanted, to, that I thought I could do that, that these businesses would pay for the homes that I would live in. And so ultimately I thought, well, we're in Brooklyn and I love to be in Brooklyn in the fall. I'm from Washington, DC, no better place to be in the spring. So I said, okay, DC for the spring. Um, I had gone to a workshop for aspiring innkeepers in Cape May, New Jersey, which is on the Jersey shore. And when I was doing my research about doing this Brooklyn project. And so I thought, hmm, that's a great place to be in the summer on the Jersey Shore. I believe that water is, you know, stress is water soluble. And so Cape May makes sense to me. And it's also midway between Brooklyn and um, D.C. So uh, I chose Cape May for my summer location. And then I chose for my winter location, Uh, New Orleans, because I felt like um, where would it be still warm when it's cold most other places in the winter? And that became New Orleans that we opened there. So those were the four places where business plan married my life plan, if you will. That said, we no longer have New Orleans. And we opened there um, as we've opened all of the locations on July 4th. Uh, Every single inn opens on July 4th as a declaration of my independence. I love that. Yes. So 
yeah, when we talk about entrepreneurship, you know, I see that it equates with um, independence. And so July 4th, I don't care when I buy it or what ha- what's happening, we've got to open on July 4th. So we opened July 4th in New Orleans, um, which was also simultaneous, simultaneous with the uh, Essence Music Festival. And unfortunately, one month later, we had an uninvited guest who showed up and her name was Katrina. So that just kind of drowned our business. And it's probably been the most challenging uh, business hurdle that I've had as an entrepreneur is how to finesse a situation that you have no control over. And how do you come back from that? Um, I feel like right now I'm living in the second most traumatic thing for my business with the coronavirus. You know, these have been very, very challenging days for my industry, for my business, for me personally. Uh, The phone is ringing constantly with people canceling reservations. And, you know, that's something we could never have anticipated. Um, It's something that will that is dramatically impacting our bottom line uh, at the worst possible time. This is a peak season for us with people with spring break and um, looking at colleges. We happen to be in cities that are near colleges where parents bring kids during spring break and check out the schools. All of that. Cherry blossoms. I mean, and it's just, um, you know, it's, it's just an unfortunate situation that will have a pretty dramatic impact on our business. And how have you pushed through in the past? I mean, I look at you and I think a lot of us look at you and we think, you know, she's able to purchase and open four different properties five, if you count New Orleans, like that is amazing. And, and clearly you've bounced back. Like what are, what were some of the keys to bouncing back from the Katrina disaster? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that you give yourself maybe one or two days only to lick your wounds and to feel sorry for yourself and to say, woe is me, you know, and then by day three, you got to get it up and get it moving and figure out like, okay, so this has happened. Um, and how do you push through that? And in the case of Katrina, I had to figure out like, well, okay, the property itself is still standing and it's in good shape. Uh, There's just no business, but somebody needs to be here. Who needs to be here is what I asked myself. And I realized at that moment that it was insurance adjusters. They were the ones who needed to be in New Orleans. They were coming in droves. And so I ended up calling Allstate and State Farm and anybody who had good hands that needed to be there and said that, you know, we have lodging accommodations. um, We did not flood and we can service you. And that's who our customers were, all insurance adjusters. And that was a really great business for us to have. And then we worked with FEMA to house folks um, as they were coming back to check on the work that was being done in their homes. We changed our model so that we no longer made breakfast, but we gave access to the kitchen, which is what people needed because they were there for a length of time and they wanted to be able to cook in the kitchen. Again, this is pre-Airbnb. No one had ever heard of that concept, you know, I was like, but we have to shift our model. We're not going to just make breakfast. We need to give people um, all the all the accoutrements of feeling like home. And so they need to be able to use the kitchen. So we kind of shifted that model. We did some bartering to get the things done that needed to be fixed as everybody had challenges. We had to get some things repaired. So we did some bartering to make that happen. You know what? There, where there is a will, I do believe there is a way. And so we just tried to be innovative about how we approached it. We tried not to um, feel sorry for ourselves. We try to not be victims and claim victory and, and just move forward. And that's kind of how I see it. Even right now, as we deal with the coronavirus, it's like we can do everything that we can to ensure the safety of our guests and our teammates. And we can, you know, continue to open our doors to those who will come and those who will not come. It's like, well, can we give you credit? Because we really rather would not give your money back. It's just going to bankrupt us to do that. But we can give your credit and we can do this all over again when it's a better time for everybody. Um, So, you know, you just keep it moving. I think that's an important reminder for all of us. And you know, Monique, one of the things that I think a lot of people will be thinking about or asking as they're listening to this is, um, you know, you make it seem so smooth, right? Like you are side hustling, but you're still managing to buy a property in a different city. What does that look like? Is there someone on your team that supported you with the scouting, the dealing with realtors, the actual closing process? How long did that whole process take and how were you able to do it while side hustling? I was basically opening a new property every two years. We talked about 
Brooklyn being the first location and then going to Cape May uh, on the Jersey Shore and then going to Washington, D.C. and then New Orleans. So while we no longer have New Orleans, we have to sold that one. We opened in the Poconos. And so I purchased a 25,000 square foot mansion that sits on 22 acres uh, in the Poconos that is a former Woolworth estate. And that is right now, that is probably the the jewel in our crown. That particular bed and breakfast is more like a boutique resort in that there is a eight treatment room spa on premises and there's a huge gym with an Olympic-sized pool and basketball courts. We have tennis courts, walking paths. Um, so it's just a full facility. And so that one I've had now, I guess, about six years. And then last year, I purchased one in Philadelphia, and that's our newest location in University City, uh, right there by Drexel and UPenn. I enjoy the search, Michaela. I love the real estate piece of looking for the properties. I decorate every end myself personally. So I do that part of it. Um, that's the that's the joy for me. Sometimes it's challenging because you have to depend on so many other people with contractors and all of that. But at the end of the day, um, you get to step back and see something that, that was in your head that you've actually created. And I go, oh, that turned out exactly the way I wanted it to. That was the exact color I thought that wall should be. And boy, I was excited when I was in Home Goods and saw those pillows and <laughs> it complements beautifully. And so that's the part of the job that I am very much involved with. The acquisition of the properties, the maintenance of the properties is definitely on my list of things to, to do uh, for the business. We have a really small team. I should say, so each location has an innkeeper that that person either lives on premises or lives close to premises and they run the day-to-day of that property. And we also have a housekeeper who's on staff at each location who makes sure that the property is maintained at all times. Our innkeepers make prepare the breakfast and do all the guest relations. And then we have a um, reservationist who sits in the office at the headquarter location in Brooklyn and answers all of the phones to make reservations. A lot is done online now. So it's absolutely doable for one person. And then I have a a marketing person who does all of our social media and all of our marketing and and then me. And then I have my my husband who will do the honeydew list, but is not involved in the day-to-day <laughs> operations of the business because a lot of people romanticize what that would be like to be in business with your honey. Um, you know, we learned probably after the first year that there's a lot that we do well together but working together isn't one of them. Um, so we, we we have different work styles and work ethics. And we also, um, you know, I'm passionate about this and it wasn't his passion. And so I think that when you're running your own business, you can't have anybody on your front row who is totally not invested in what you're doing to the extent that you are. And so he's invested in me. And so he will support me, but not run this business and not run it with me. Um, we just decided that wasn't a good look for us. That is such a good point to make. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I think a lot of times people think by default, oh, if you're doing really successful in your business and of course your your honey supports you, that they will just dive all in and be as excited. Mm-mm. But that wasn't their dream, you know? Exactly. So it, it's hard for them to work up that same amount of passion. You can't, you can't teach that. You can't force that. But they can certainly support you when you need some more hands on deck. <laughs> exactly. I learned early on that if I needed him to do something, I would say, well, this is your wife who's asking. This is not the CEO of a Quaba who's asking. This is your wife. And so I make that distinction and and then that makes a difference, you know. Um, and, you know, my, my newest challenge is, is trying to see if I can influence my daughter to have a role in the business because what I find with Black-owned businesses in particular is that they really um, transfer from one generation to the next. And if they don't, it's also hard to see how we as a people transfer wealth. Um, and so it's really, uh, it's a real, it's a real concern, I think, in our community about passing businesses on so that the next generation doesn't have to start from scratch and so that they also can then continue to grow it and have something for the generation after that. But, you know, my daughter is fond of quoting my own book, which is called Having What Matters. <laughs> 
running this business doesn't really matter much to her. Uh, she is a writer and she will tell me, well, I'm taking after you in that respect. And I'm like, mm, that, I don't need you to do what I did as a profession. I just want you to at least have one foot and one hand in this business as you go about the business of your own, you know, so we're still working through that. I think it's possible to balance and juggle both, um, but that's the nature of who I am. I juggle a lot and uh, I don't know that it's what she, how she sees her life, but we'll, we'll look at that because it's for me, legacy building is critical. Absolutely. And and that's a topic that we haven't touched on before on this show. But, um, you know, as a founder, when you've built something so, you know, an empire, you've built an empire and you have children, it's that next level of how do you get them to get as excited and keep the legacy going is uh-huh. is complex. I don't know. Um, that would be a whole other podcast episode. But thank you for sharing that. I know we're going to get into the fact that you guys, you have a series on OWN and, you know, it chronicles some of that. So uh-huh. that's that's really interesting. But I want to know how, how and when you decided to leave Essence and completely focus on Aquaba full-time? Well, I think I was just talking to my daughter about this the other day. It really happened quickly. I mean, I I realized that when I was writing the book, Having What Matters, as I said, that I didn't have what mattered in my life, that I was, you know, far too stretched. My, my, my plate had become a platter and something had to give. And at the end of the day, I realized that I couldn't leave my daughter, my job at Essence, but I could leave her this business as a legacy. And so when I had to make a choice, that's that's really what it came down to. I remember the day that really pushed the pushed it for me. She was going off to camp, summer camp, and uh, the next day, and I was still in the office, and I did, we didn't have a sleeping bag. There was no bug spray. There was nothing. It was like, oh my god, this is crazy. <laughs> and so uh, I just thought, you know, can't can't do it like this anymore. You know, I I think I'm this master multitasker, but at at the end of the day, there's only 24 hours in the day and you've got to find some of that time for you because if you can't, and if you don't, you know, you're not going to be good to your customer. You can't be good to your family. Um, You've got to be good to you you first. And so, you know, it's something that I knew I could give voice to, but I, but I wasn't really living that. And so um, that's when I had to make that decision. I also realized that that I couldn't necessarily expect my business to pay me what my um, my job had paid me. And I think when people make the transition, they have to be realistic about that and see if that works for them. You know, a lot of times when people start a business, it's it's a new idea, it's a new concept for them. They have no, maybe not, not a lot of proven, um, uh, proven experience in that area. You know, I didn't go to school to be an innkeeper. I, you know, I didn't know anything about that. In fact, I never even did house chores because my mom, as I said, I'm a first-generation college grad, so my job was go to school and make great grades. I didn't have chores. and She would not allow me to do, to make a bed and to cook and to wash clothes and to wash dishes. So I came into this and my siblings still laughed. I can't believe, I can't believe you do this. Really? You you don't even know how to cook. They would say, just laugh at me, you know? And um, I think it's okay to make that transition, but I think it may not be okay to expect it to pay you um, what your job has paid, the thing that you went to college to, to learn the thing that you built your resume on, um, it may not work. So that was the first realization that I had. I, I made a budget and I said, well, how much does this business have to pay me to live uh, at a level that I can be comfortable? Maybe not as comfortable as I was when I had my you know, six-figure paycheck from the job, but what would have to happen? So I think you, you learn that. And then you come up with a growth plan and figure out how long it's going to take for your business to, to start to be able to support you in the way that you wanted it to. To support you. So um, I was very, very realistic about um, the transition from employee to employer and what that was going to look like in my life. But really excited to be able to do that. Indeed. In talking to so many different types of entrepreneurs, I know that a lot of people lose money in their first years of business, or as you've described, you have ups and downs. You know, there's some really great years and there are years that challenge you with things that are out of your control. How do you ensure that your businesses 
will remain afloat, will remain profitable and continue to support all the people who work for you? I mean, the first thing you do is you watch it. Some people are not looking at the numbers and they don't even know what their business is doing. You know, so I I do my profit and loss statements and I and I set my goals and I say, this is what we need to do. And I know what my break even points are. And, you know, you have to really be knowledgeable about your business and your numbers and what your expectations are for being able to support the people who count on you and being able to create a lifestyle for yourself. I think it's really unfortunate when I see people who who work a job so they can own a business. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. You know, <laughs> unless it's a temporary situation where you are investing in your own business and you need that paycheck for now, you're funneling that money into your business, but you know at the point in which that will stop. You know, you don't work so that you can own a business. That doesn't make any sense. Um, so I think that's part of it. You, you don't get, you also don't get too emotionally attached so that you you go, well, this is, you know, I invested in this or this is my business and I, it's my dream, it's my baby, all those things that we call it. Um, and we don't want to let it go when it needs to be let go, or we don't want to pivot when it needs to pivot. And I think that's the most important. I'm, I'm not one to quit. So I'm always going to go, okay, it doesn't work quite like this, but what if we shift and look at it like this? So you might need to change the model for your business. And you got to be open to that. You've got to stay abreast of technology in terms of, you know, is there a more efficient way to do what you do? You got to be ready to do some price adjustments. And sometimes that's hard for entrepreneurs. It's hard for me. I don't I don't want to raise prices. You know, I just like, oh, I want to keep it affordable. And me, I'm very thrifty. So people go say to me, that's not affordable. That's called cheap what you're doing right now. You know, and like so you got to get comfortable with charging the right price for your product and a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with that I included so I think that's it's constant you got to try to have your 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 board of advisors or your kitchen ca- cabinet or whatever you want to call those people that you know you can kind of bounce ideas off on and say hey am I crazy or is this right um, that people who you can value their positions don't talk to people who are scared because those people will just try to you know limit your thinking and your and your goals and possibilities but you do want to have those trusted folks that you can turn to and have some dialogue with and and see where you're going and, and if that that's the right direction for you. Right. And one of the things I, you know, that stands out to me about how you run your business and your, and your brand, I have seen you on television on a few different, on you know, two different occasions. And that really, I've always known about Aquaba, but it really just piqued my interest even more. And I'm sure there are people who then learned about it for the first time. So are these opportunities that you strategically went after or pitched to raise the marketing visibility for the ins? I am probably one of the most blessed people I know. I certainly um, didn't go to Oprah and pitch a reality show. I never even in my wildest dreams would have thought that we'd have an, a reality show on the own network. So you you remain open and you try to, to become, everyone has a story to tell. So you become good at telling your story and people will will want to hear it and in different forms. So you remain open, right, to what that is. Um, you get the call from Michaela who says she wants to interview you and you find the time and you make it happen because there's somebody out there listening right now who needs to know what I have to say around entrepreneurship. But they also may be celebrating their birthday, uh, 50th birthday next next month or whatever. And they may say, oh my God, that would be a great place for my milestone birthday. So you try to seize all of those types of opportunities. I love telling my story and through any medium possible. And certainly television is an incredible uh, opportunity and having a, a one hour reality show, a weekly reality show on OWN's network was, it's like a one hour commercial, you know? And so you can't ask for, I mean, I could never afford that to pay for that kind of exposure. Um, so you do it in any form that you can. It, 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 if it doesn't come in the way of the Oprah network, there may be an online um, series that you can get plugged into. If you can't try creating one yourself with 
where's your blog? You know, how are you getting your word out and letting people know, you know, what is your story? And, and also what is the pain that they have that you can solve for? And that's our job as CEOs of businesses, as founders to try to figure out, you know, how do we get to our customers and let them know that we have exactly what they need. Amen. So what is next for Aquaba? Well, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that my goal was to have a location for uh, every season of the year, and there are only four seasons, and we already have five locations, and my husband reminds me of that all the time. He's like, <laughs> where did you learn about seasons? <laughs> so um, I don't anticipate at this point that there will be a sixth location that I will own and operate. That's not to say that we wouldn't create kind of a franchise model where we can, you know, we can already share a proven brand and a and a success strategy for someone else to execute. So that's always a possibility. I'm really excited about the possibility of creating a home line, uh, a branded Aquaba home line, so that the types of things that we use within the end and we decorate and we prepare um, are things that people can pick up at their area retail store. We just launched Shop Aquaba, which is our online store. Uh, We're excited about that. You can find that by going to our website and look at our shop, Aquaba. We are merchandising and selling branded items that say Aquaba. We're also selling African imports that we're bringing in ourselves. And then we're also promoting and selling um, items made by African-American artisans. So those are kind of the three buckets of, 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 of the, the types of things that I'm excited about. And it could be every, anything from our hand-thrown ceramic coffee mugs that people love sipping every morning from our breakfast table and they want to take those home to our luxurious robes that we have in our rooms, to the sheets that we put on our beds, all of those things we're selling, um, along with um, – you know, the, the scented candles and, you know, just, just everything beautiful for the home that we use at the ends that people can now have at their home. So I'd like to see that expanded beyond our uh, Shop Aquaba online and have a, have, a, have a program where you'd be able to find those in the stores. What else am I interested in? I, you know, we, we just keep trying to evolve. We, we just launched um, our glamping garden, which is in our Brooklyn location. So we have um, outdoor glamping tents right here in the middle of Brooklyn, and they're beautiful, and folks can rent those for the night. Um, they can stay in, in the room if they want, or they can stay outside in the tent. Um, and we have an outdoor living room that has a movie screen, so we show movies outside for our guests. It has an outdoor fireplace. We have a kitchen outside, and a, we serve our breakfast in the warm weather um, at a large family-style table in the garden. So that's exciting. Um and I got some other things where we want to actually um, do some mobile hospitality, perhaps. But right now, I'm just taking it day by day. But I have some really great ideas that I that I'm um, hoping that we get to. Yes, and I love the fact that the fire keeps going, and you're always thinking. I saw that renovation and the glamping setup on HGTV. Oh yeah, no, the CNBC. Yeah, CNBC. So sorry, the that was great. On that, yeah, we did that in like five days. It was a great project. Yeah, we'll try to find the link and link to that. So, Monique, now we're going to jump into what I call a quick lightning round, where you just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Speed is of the essence. Are you ready? <laughs> I don't know. I'll try to be. Okay. <laughs> All righty. So, number one, what is a resource that has helped you in your business that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience? I would say the um, the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program. Um, I, I I did that once I left my job full time, and I realized this was going to be the way I made my living. And that Goldman Sachs program is all over the country, and it's like a mini MBA. It's absolutely free, and what you end up doing over a course of you know maybe um, a month and a half is creating a growth plan for your business. So it's not for the startup, but it is for the business that wants to grow. So I would encourage folks to look at the uh, the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program. It's an amazing resource. Hmm, thank you. Number two, what has been the best business book or best business event that you've consumed and directly applied lessons to your business? 
Wow, I love business books. I probably would say The E-Myth by, is it Michael Gerber, I think? Yes, yes. I love The E-Myth. Basically, what I learned was that, you know, it's not a good thing if your customer only wants you to be the one to service them, for example, if you're so aligned with your brand that that brand can't survive without you, that's a problem. And so, you know, with me now having five locations in five different cities, people are surprised when they see me there and excited. And that's good. That makes sense. But they shouldn't come expecting me to be there because that would be impossible. I can't, haven't figured out how to clone myself yet. Right. I think that the E-Myth helps you to understand about that and how to not kind of be too synonymous with your business. Alrighty. And then number three, what is a non-negotiable part of your daily routine? I don't know that I have any non-negotiables. It would be great. I used to have a non-negotiable where um, I would start my day at six and I wouldn't want anybody, my husband, my child, no one to interrupt me until eight. And that was the time when I worked out and I did my own kind of quiet meditation. And that was when I gave myself to me before I gave myself away. I have to be honest, I'm slipping on that. Um, So I need to go back and do that. So, um, you know, it's good to have non-negotiables, but what I'm finding is that it's even better to have flexibility because no day is like the day before in my life. And so I've got to stay flexible and nimble. Alrighty. Number four, what is a personal habit that helped you significantly when you were side hustling? I think um, I mentioned before, just keep, um, coming up with my list of things to do at night. I will not go to bed without my list of things to do for the next day because I need to park all of that energy, all of that the rattling in my head somewhere so that I can get a good night's sleep. And if I don't write it down and, and, and let the paper hold it, I'm holding on to it throughout my sleep. And that's not a good thing. It also helps me in the morning to be very intentional about what my day is, is supposed to be. And I get immense joy um, and out of sense of accomplishment, out of uh, putting those checks as I get those things done. And I put my list of things to do in order of um, priority, but I also put some easy things in there throughout the day so that I don't get discouraged and I can make a check and feel a sense of accomplishment. All right. And finally, number five, what is your parting advice for fellow women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss, but are worried about losing a steady paycheck? You just got to replace the fear with faith and also with planning and preparation. You know, once you feel confident about what you're doing because you've done the work, um, you don't, you don't, get nervous. You really don't. You can always go back and get another job. And when people say steady paycheck, to me, that's kind of laughable because nothing is steady. You know, people get the green, the, the pink slip lots of times, you know. And so, yeah, I'd say invest in yourself before you think that somebody else is going to save you in any way. You've got to invest in you. And with that, where can people connect with you and Aquaba ends after this episode? Certainly, we're on all social media platforms. I believe we're Aquaba Ends on all of the social media platforms. Our website is Aquaba.com, and Aquaba is spelled A-K-W-A-A-B-A. It means welcome in Ghana, West Africa. And um, that's the best way to connect with us on social. But the better way is to come and really connect with us and stay with us at one of our locations, either in Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia, Cape May, New Jersey, Brooklyn, New York, or the Poconos. We'd love to have you. And there you have it. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other side hustlers just like you to find the show. And if you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Side Hustle Pro. Plus, sign up for my six-foot Saturday newsletter at sidehustlepro.co slash newsletter. When you sign up, you'll receive weekly nuggets from me, including what I'm up to, personal lessons, and my business tip of the week. Again, that's sidehustlepro.co slash newsletter to sign up. Talk to you soon.